0: On your Bibles to Haggai chapter 2. If you have a Pew
1: Bible, that is on page 791. Haggai chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 10 through 23. Please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. On the 24th day of the ninth
0: month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month. Since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel." declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord of
1: hosts. You may be seated. Just want to call your attention to the
0: outline in the worship guide. You've probably already seen that. Uh, If you're wanting to take notes, that might be helpful. Last week, Reverend Lima preached on the first two-thirds of Haggai. He began with an interesting scenario. If your house is on fire and you had to get one thing out of it, what would it be? What would you prioritize? That was the question. And... As we said, as he said, hopefully it would be people first, right? You get the people out. And then maybe if there's some family heirloom that's irreplaceable and you've got time and it's safe, get that thing out. But what are we going to prioritize? This picture that he gave of fire destroying everything was an interesting one. He didn't really, this wasn't really his point, but in light of what we've been talking about in the Minor Prophets, There's been a lot of talk about fire and destruction and judgment from God. There is this picture of destruction and and judgment that we've been seeing. But then there is also this picture of rebuilding and restoration. So whether it's a a fire destroying a house, whether it's a tornado destroying a house all the way to the ground. There is always this hope of, of rebuilding and restoration. We're here in... A new time period now in the Minor Prophets. We are in the mid-6th century BC, in the year 520. Uh, We actually know the exact days, as James explained last week. Some of the people are back in the land, and they've begun rebuilding the temple. The work actually began in 536, 16 years prior to this, but it stalled out. Again, you can go read about that work in Ezra and Nehemiah. But now here in Haggai, these two weeks, and then in Zechariah, which we're going to be in for the next six weeks, we're going to see an emphasis on the restoration of God's people that is tied to both the temple and the kingship. So if you see that insert there uh, in your worship guide, the outline, there are two main points which correspond to our two sections that we'll be looking at today. And first in verses 10 through 19, and then in verses 20 to 23. And these are followed by a therefore let us, and I will let you fill those in when we get to those. But our first point here is that God offers present promises of restoration blessings for those who prioritize his dwelling among them. So piggybacking a little bit off of the themes that James talked about last week. We saw in the first half of chapter two, a call to Zerubbabel, the governor and to Joshua, the high priest, to be strong and to work and to encourage the people, despite the fact that their current progress pales in comparison with the glory of Solomon's temple, which had been destroyed 50 years prior in 586, 50 years prior to the, the beginning of the work. There is certainly some discouragement here that they are facing, but God actually gives a greater future promise in verse nine of future glory. The Lord says the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, as we come to verse 10, it's two months later. It's December 18th. And God tells Haggai to go and question the priests about the law. It seems like an odd set of questions here in verse, verses 12 and 13, but it is very significant. The first question in verse 12 is, If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garments and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? To which the priests answer, No. This comes from Leviticus chapter 6, verse 27, where whatever touched the flesh of the sin offering became holy. So there is an idea of something, this fold of the garment becoming holy from this holy meat. But the point here is that that holiness is not then transferable to another item. It's not transferable to, from that garment to another item. The second question then, conversely, in verse 13 is, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answers, yes, it does become unclean. Well, What's the point here in these seemingly odd questions? As one scholar puts it, defilement is more contagious than holiness defilement is more contagious than holiness. There's a couple of helpful ways to think about this. If you have clean hands and you walk into somebody's house and you walk around and touch all of these things, nobody's going to know that you were there, right? Unless you move something like you're not going to leave clean prints on these items. But if you were out working on your car or working on, Like parts, and your hands are all full of grease, and you come walking in and you start touching all these things, you're going to leave some marks, right? Or if you were out in the garden, your hands are all full of dirt, you come in, you're going to leave some marks. Similarly, if you think about physical health, if you as a parent or a spouse are very dedicated to diet and exercise, you're taking care of yourself, you're in the best shape of your life, that's not transferable to your spouse, right? what you do does not automatically go to them. It's not transferable to your friends who come to visit. If you take your vitamins, it's not going to be transferable to anyone else except for pregnant mothers. I thought of that. There's the one scenario, right? But that's the only situation where you doing something for the sake of your body is going to be transferred to someone else. This, the, the holiness, the, the purity, the goodness, those things are not transferable. But if you come down with a communicable disease and you walk into a room full of people, I, you know, we're very familiar with, with all of this lately, right? If you just walk around and start sneezing and <laughs> blowing all over people, they're going to get sick, right? So defilement is more contagious than holiness. That's the point that Haggai is making here. Look at verse 14. He says, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. The people have become defiled and unclean. The works of their hands, as we saw in chapter one, were self-centered. They were busying themselves with building their own houses while the Lord's house lay in ruins. Lord tell, the Lord tells them that every work of their hands and everything that they offer is unclean. I think this, what we see here in Haggai is a great challenge to what we often try to justify in our minds as the, the sacred-secular divide. This is something that kind of goes back quite a ways in church history, talking about this divide between the sacred and secular. You see it a lot, uh, like in uh, the Middle Ages, medieval church with the uh, Uh, monks going off into you know going off into the wilderness in these cloisters there was this idea of like if we just separate ourselves off from the world we will purify ourselves so this and that kind of morphed into all these discussions about the sacred and secular divide we think that God calls us to holiness in one area of our lives our spiritual lives so we come to church on Sunday we give our tithe Then we we might read our Bibles and, and pray throughout the week, but we compartmentalize our lives as if the spiritual part of our lives does not go with us then to school or does not go with us to work or does not go with us to the grocery store. As if we leave that stuff at home in this spiritual box. When God says, no, that's not how it works. It's all interconnected. Your whole life is interconnected. One commentator, Mikamiski, explains that Haggai is challenging both the concept of a purely secular society and the notion that religious activity is self-validating. If people are not right with God, he says, their society will be warped and ineffective, and their religion will reflect their character, not change it. The springs of life need to be clean if the outflow is to be clean. And that's what God is calling for here. What he consistently calls his people to throughout scripture. Think about the indictment in Isaiah 29, 13, where the Lord says that they are a people who draw near with their mouth and they honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. Which Jesus quotes in Matthew 15 and Mark 7, just before he explains that it's not foods going into the stomach From the outside that defile a person, but what comes out of the mouth, which proceeds from our hearts. Jesus called the scribes and Pharisees whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead persons, bones, and all uncleanness, and said that they outwardly appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The outside needs to match the inside. There is no sacred, secular divide. It's all connected. It's all intertwined. For the people of Judah in Haggai's time, this indictment came due to their indifference towards the dwelling of God in their midst. The decaying temple was a picture of their decaying relationship with the Lord. And it was not just about external decay. So the Lord reminds them, and he asks them to consider. We see this word here in verse 15, and then twice in verse 18, consider. Similar to what we saw in chapter 1, where the Lord said, consider your ways. We could translate this as give thought or think carefully about these things. The Lord is asking them in verses 15 through 19 to think about how things have gone for the last 16 years since they began the work of laying the foundation of the temple, but then stalled out. He reminds them of how bad it's been and how he himself is the one who has brought this upon them. Look at verse 17. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Notice that key phrase there. Yet you did not turn to me. I did all of these things, people of Judah, to get your attention, right? Yet you did not turn to me. Literally, this means that they did not give God their allegiance or their devotion. And God's chastisement of them through physical drought was meant to lead them back to Him, back to dependence upon Him. But instead, they lived in fear of foreign threats, and the work of God's house did not. Continue, yet despite all these things, what does the Lord promise? Look at the last sentence in verse 19. But from this day on, I will bless you. This is the reversal of fortunes that we have seen so often throughout the prophets. That despite the people's sin and rebellion, despite how unworthy they are to be recipients of God's blessing, the Lord will be gracious and merciful to them. Is this not the drum that we have been beating over and over and over here as we've been going through the minor prophets? Not just as it's related to the people of Israel and Judah in this period of about 500 years during the minor prophets, but for us here, 2,500
1: years later. We come now to our first, therefore, statement in our outline.
0: So, God offers present promises of restoration blessings for those who prioritize his dwelling among them. Therefore, let us live faithfully for him now, in light of the grace of God poured out on us in Christ. Therefore, let us live faithfully for him now in light of the grace of God poured out on us in Christ. James reminded us last week how this imagery of the temple is fulfilled in Jesus and in us, his church. Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew 12, something greater than the temple is here. And he was referring to himself. And how we are like living stones built upon Jesus the living stone first peter chapter 2 some imagery we like a lot around here right or as paul reminds us in ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 through 22 when he says so then you are no longer aliens and strangers but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of god built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets christ jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by
1: the Spirit. I want to ask us, do we really understand the significance of this? Do we really grasp what God
0: has done in our midst and what he is doing through his people throughout the world? One of the overarching themes in all of scripture is God's promise to dwell among his people. It's the main problem needing to be remedied since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. It's what the whole trajectory of human history and of redemptive history is pointing us forward to. When we see in Revelation chapter 1, God dwelling among his people fully and finally. The answer is not found in a physical structure. It's not in a rebuilt temple. Now, I don't want to get too sidetracked here with end times views, but if your eschatology is dependent upon a physical temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem before anything else significant happens in the world, I think you're missing the point of what the Lord is pointing to here in Haggai and in the rest. Of the Bible, and I'd be happy to talk to you about those things later on. But the very, the very ministry of Jesus, all his teaching, everything that we see, is not about this hope in a physical temple being built. Right? It's about this new temple, this spiritual people of God that he has brought together, that he has sent out into the world. So, what does this look like to live faithfully for God now, in light of his grace poured out on us? In Christ. You won't be surprised to hear me say that we have to think of this in terms of the now or the already and the not yet. There is the reality that there is work to do here and now. We need to get to work, as it were, prioritizing God's kingdom, his work in our lives and in our congregation. We don't divorce ourselves from the needs of the world around us but we also don't put our ultimate hope in the here and now reform of our society and our nation. There's always going to be this tension for the church of Jesus Christ to be in the world, right? To be salt and light, to have an impact, but to not be of the world. And to know that our ultimate hope isn't in changing the world and the world's systems. We are to live as aliens and strangers. And yet at the same time, love our neighbors And even love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We ought to desire the good and the blessing from God to flow out from us into the world around us. And this can feel like a maddening endeavor when we see such chaos in our world. Again, this obviously hits home when we see a Christian school in our denomination targeted with deadly violence. And when we live in a world of 24-7 news cycles, when we can literally watch the cops go in on their body cams and take the shooter out. It's crazy. These tragedies likely are not going away anytime soon. Not only will they likely increase and multiply, the in-your-faceness of it all is going to only increase as well. And how will God's people respond? Will we respond with trite thoughts and prayers, comments on... Posts and to people like those made by so many people who really don't know what it means to cry out to the sovereign God? Will we just flippantly quote Psalm 23 about how God is with us when things are hard? Or will we live out our faith like Reverend Chad Scruggs, whose daughter was gunned down when he told a fellow pastor friend just hours after, We know she's in the arms of Christ and we know. He loves her more than we did. James shared a video clip this week with the men's group of a sermon that Reverend Scruggs preached three weeks before the shooting of his daughter about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and about Christians conquering death. This is what he said three weeks before his daughter was murdered. The shadow, the sting and the possibility of death will be no more. The night of weeping will end. If you are doubting his love for you, if you are struggling with his authority in the midst of sadness and confusion, let the cross speak to you again.
1: What enables someone to give an answer like that? Is that just pastor speak? Did
0: he just craft this really nifty paragraph and say, this will this will make
1: this will sound good for people is this just a professional christian giving all the right answers
0: he could have raged about gun violence he could have raged about the identity of the shooter or any other political talking points that have been at the center of this story i'm not saying that those things are insignificant what enabled him to give that answer it said he believes the very word of God that he preached to his congregation three weeks before his precious daughter was brutally murdered. He believed that one day the shadow and the sting and the possibility of death will be no more and that the night of weeping will end. So just as Reverend Scruggs implored his congregation, so I implore you. If you are doubting his love for you, if you are struggling with his authority in the midst of sadness and confusion, let the cross speak to you again. During this holy week, as we fix our eyes ahead to Calvary, let us, brothers and sisters, let the cross speak to us again of our Savior's love for us, of his wrath-bearing sacrifice in our place for our sins. And let us especially fix our hearts on his death-destroying resurrection from the grave that gives us both a present and a future hope that our God dwells among us. To that precious truth, we now turn in these last few verses of Haggai. Our second point there is that God offers future promises of restoration blessings for those who prioritize his dwelling among them. Haggai's prophecy Begins with the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. And it ends with the Lord telling Haggai to speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. James didn't get into much about Zerubbabel. He said I would be doing it this week. So before we look at this message, it'll be helpful to observe a few things about Zerubbabel. We're told in chapter 1 that he is the son of Shealtiel. If you read Matthew's genealogy in of Jesus in chapter one, we're told that after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. So, Jeconiah, who is also known as Jehoiachin, who you can read about in the last chapters of Second Kings and Second Chronicles, he is the grandfather of Zerubbabel. So, Jehoiachin, he is the last king to sit on the throne of Judah before the Babylonian exile. Now, after 66 years, the people are back in the land, and here we have the grandson to the king and the rightful heir of the throne. And what title is he given? Governor. Because Darius, the Persian king, is in charge. Now, to say that this is a problem for God's people and their hopes of a restored earthly kingdom is the understatement of the millennium. McComiskey is really helpful here again. He writes, Zerubbabel, the Davidic descendant, was in reality the heir to nothing. There was no throne for him to mount or crown to wear, no empire to rule or royal acclaim to enjoy. It is not even certain that his title of governor was anything more than honorific. The whole Davidic enterprise had long since run into the sand. But to write off the Davidic promises would be to forget the faithfulness of God who does not lie or change his mind. So what are these Davidic promises? What is primarily what we refer to as the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7? That God would give David rest from all his enemies and that David's offspring would build God a house, the temple, And that God would establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, Again, we have a problem here with Zerubbabel because there is no king. There is no completed temple and there is no kingdom. They are the vassal puppets of the Persian empire. But just because things look bleak in human terms does not mean that God is done with his people.
1: Look at the promise of what God is going to do in verses 21. And 22. God says, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms.
0: I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down everyone by the
1: sword of his brother. This is language that specifically brings to mind the Exodus
0: looking at the horse and their rider being overthrown. But this isn't just meant to get them to look back, to remember what God had done in the past. This is a present and a future promise as well. And while it didn't materialize here in 520 BC in their present time, it was a messianic hope that was to fuel the people of God in the midst of their present struggles. They were meant to look to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Lord of hosts, this title that is used here 12 times in Haggai in 38 verses. We've talked about this a bit throughout the Minor Prophets, this title. Lord of hosts, it means the Lord of heaven's armies. It's this great declaration of God's sovereignty, how he will defeat his enemies, how he will rescue his people. And we see it two times here in this very last verse. The big beginning and the end of that verse declares the Lord of hosts. and declares the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is speaking and making his promises known to his people here in Haggai, just like he does throughout all of scripture, throughout all the prophets. And the kingdoms of the world don't stand a chance against his mighty power. Does the church of Jesus Christ today need to hear this promise any less than God's people did at that time? No way. We need to hear this. We live as God's people scattered throughout this world in earthly kingdoms that are not living in submission to King Jesus. But we are guaranteed that God will rule and reign over all the earth and that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our forward-looking hope to the rule and the reign of Jesus is what was meant to be ignited here in this last verse of Haggai. This imagery here in verse 23 is a picture of a great reversal that the Lord will bring about on behalf of his people. Look with me at verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtio, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. We can't miss the significance of what the Lord is communicating here when he says that he will make Zerubbabel like a signet ring. This also relates to the significance of the royal family line. Jeremiah prophesied a couple generations before Haggai to Zerubbabel's grandfather Jehoiakim, who uh, again was the last king in Judah before the exile to Babylon. Here was the Lord's message to uh, Jehoiachin, Jehoiachin, chin however you want to say it. This was his message through Jeremiah. As I live, declares the Lord, through Koniah, who is the same. This is uh, Jehoiachin. He's called Koniah here in Jeremiah. As I live, declares the Lord, through Koniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off. And give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they will they will long to return, there they shall not return. So this was the promise given to Zerubbabel's grandfather, the king, that God would tear him off as the signet ring, tear him off from his hand and send the people into exile. Now, the signet ring was used by a king to impress his seal. He would press that into a piece of clay to authenticate that he made some decision. It's like my little book embosser that I, when I get a new book, I take that and I I clamp that thing down and it says, Library of Josh Golaxon. So when I lend you one of my books, you know that that book does not belong to you. It belongs to me. So in five years, after you find it on your shelf and you feel guilty, you know where to return. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I have a list of all the books I've lent out. So I know I'm watching you. But it's it's that idea, right, of saying, here's this stamp of authority. Here's this thing saying this belongs to somebody or this is this person making this decision. That's what that signet ring signified. God ripped the kingdom away from Jehoiakim, tearing off that signet ring while his people went into exile for 70 years. And now Zerubbabel is the chosen signet ring who will be placed back on the Lord's hand. The kingdom will be restored and God will once again dwell among his people. But if we know our Bibles, particularly our, particularly our Old Testament history, we know that this never materialized, at least not with an earthly king. And how fitting of a message for Palm Sunday. When the king of kings, the promised Messiah, came riding into Jerusalem, not on a warhorse but on a colt. And the crowd shouted, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. During his circus trial on Good Friday, he was questioned by Pilate about his kingship and his kingdom, to which he responded, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the but my kingdom is not from the world. The shaking of the heavens and the overthrowing of kingdoms that Haggai prophesied was not to be fulfilled by an earthly king. The author of Hebrews, his quote of this shaking that we saw in our New Testament reading is about a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom that we have already and not yet
1: received. There is a king, and he has established his kingdom. His name is Jesus.
0: Therefore, if you're still taking notes, our final encouragement there, the second point, therefore, let us. Look forward with great anticipation to our not yet kingdom hope. Let us look forward with great anticipation to our not yet kingdom hope. To the day when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will return on a war horse. He will come back on a white horse to judge the nations and to establish his eternal kingdom and to sit on his throne forever. How terrifying and awesome will that day be. Terrifying for all of those who do not heed the warning of the prophets. Those who have not heeded the warning of God's gospel that his church has been sent out into the world to proclaim. But how awesome for all of those who are found waiting for him and longing for the day of his
1: return. May we, brothers and sisters, be counted among their number. Let us pray. God, we are so thankful for your promises to your people. We are so thankful
0: for this reminder that you desire to dwell among us. You desire to reign and rule in our lives as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You desire for your gospel to go out among the nations,
1: that people might bend the knee. They may bow to Christ and to his authority. We thank you, God, that you have sent your church out to witness your goodness, your glory, your majesty to the world around us.
0: God, we pray that we would not disconnect our lives, that we would not compartmentalize our lives separating what we might
1: call sacred and secular. God, may we take the truth of the gospel with us wherever we go.
0: May we live out the reality of of who you are and what you have done for us in Christ, wherever we go. God, thank you for this word from Haggai. I think for this, thank you for this reminder of restoration.
1: God, that you will establish your kingdom and your reign, and that we can trust you to do so. Thank you that
0: your kingdom is not of this world. Thank you that we belong to a kingdom
1: that cannot be shaken. Let us go out into the world with confidence that we are citizens of that kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.